when Mark, in chapter 15, it says, Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Last year we were looking at the Gospel of Mark, um, which is uh, Peter's account of his time with Jesus, what he saw Jesus do, what he heard him say, what happened. Um, We uh, stopped that for Christmas as we were thinking about Jesus' birth, but now uh, in the run-up to Easter, we're going back to the end of the Gospel of Mark because the end of the Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus' journey to the cross. So let's have a look at it. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Very early in the morning. So this has been a fateful night, the night before. Uh, It's the night where Jesus has his last supper with his disciples. It's the night where Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with his disciples. It's the night where Jesus is arrested after he's betrayed by Judas. It is the night where he is dragged before uh, the high priest, the chief priest, and the Sanhedrin, which were all the uh, rulers, sort of the ruling council of Jerusalem and of Israel. There he was accused and tried. It's the night when Peter denied Jesus three times. And now, very early in the morning after that night, the chief priests bring Jesus to Pilate to try to get him crucified. Notice where it says there, made their plans. It was not straightforward for them. When Jesus was before the Sanhedrin, when they accused him, Jesus was accused of calling himself the Messiah. The chief priest said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. Very straightforward, clean, clear confession of who Jesus was. The problem for the Sanhedrin was that Israel was occupied. 
It was the practice of Rome when they occupied a territory. Although the territory was under Roman rule and Roman, Roman law, local people were allowed to settle matters by local custom, local law, the local habits. But they were strictly forbidden to execute people. The right of the sword, the final authority over life and death, was a prerogative of Rome. And so Rome insisted that if somebody was going to die, they was going to die at their hands, according to Roman law, according to Roman custom and practice. So Pilate is the Roman administrator of Judea. He is there to enforce Roman rule and Roman law. He does not care that Jesus claims to be a Messiah. That was blasphemy to the chief priest and the Sanhedrin, but completely irrelevant to Pilate and Rome. They don't care. Locals can squabble and, and call each other whatever they want to call each other. So the Sanhedrin have to make the charge against Jesus not a religious charge of blasphemy by claiming to be the Messiah. What do they call? What do they say that Jesus is accused of? Well, look at Pilate's question. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate doesn't care if Jesus is the Messiah, but Rome had installed a puppet king, Herod, as a way of controlling Judea. If Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews, then that is a challenge. That is a rebellion. That is a threat to Roman rule and order. And so that becomes a political charge. The Sanhedrin are changing their religious charge that Jesus should not be calling himself Messiah into a political charge so that he is now liable for Roman justice, Roman law, Roman execution. And look at Jesus' odd answer. He doesn't say yes or no. You know, when the uh, Sanhedrin challenged him, when the chief priest challenged him, are you the Messiah? He said, I am. Straightforward, clear, clean. But here, you have said so. It seems like he's equivocating. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is the Messiah. He's admitted it. He said that that's why he came. But the Messiah, the idea of the Messiah, is a much bigger concept. Yes, the Messiah is a king, a leader. But the Messiah is also savior not just this narrow military or political role. And so when uh, Pilate is asking, are you a king, that is a political charge. But, but Jesus' claim is that he is the Messiah, this anointed one of God, the one sent by God to save the world. He's not denying who he is. What he's dissenting from is Pilate's narrow, pragmatic, political conception of kingship. Jesus is a much bigger figure. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, are you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Why didn't he reply? Because he's on a bigger mission. 
He's not there to argue or squabble or um, beg for Pilate to forgive him. Jesus is a man on a divine mission. He's not just a passive victim. He's on a mission, a mission from God, a mission that is prophesied and promised in the Bible. 500 years earlier in the Old Testament, we read, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the, lay, the land has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the Messiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as his sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is obedient to God the Father, to the Bible, to the divine plans and prophecies of the Bible, not to Pilate, to Roman law, to Roman punishment. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. The festival, remember this is Passover in Jerusalem. It would, Jerusalem would have been overflowing probably four or five times its usual population. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Barabbas is, is an unusual title. It's from Bar, which means son, and Abbas, which means father. Bar Abbas, son of the father. This was a, a title or a surname oftentimes given to rabbis and uh, significant teachers. And the fact that Mark refers to him by this name and talks of the uprising as if it were common knowledge, it's quite likely that Barabbas was a, a, a popular, uh, even famous rebel leader. And so that's why the crowd came to Pilate to get him released. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate? knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Pilate was a Roman administrator. He would have had spies and informers. Almost certainly he knew fully what was happening. You know, when Jesus arrived, we celebrated on Palm Sunday. Everybody received him. The whole city greeted him. He caused a fuss. He caused uh, a stir in Jerusalem. Everybody would have known Jesus and his disciples and why he was there. So Pilate knew what was going on. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. You know, after 2,000 years, that's still a shocking passage, a mob crying for Jesus to be crucified. I want to add a detail to, the, to this passage. You know, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, which was based on Peter's account of Jesus. And Peter was an illiterate fisherman, and his account is sort of a stream of consciousness. It's like this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and, and it, there's not much analysis, there's not much detail. It's just Peter recounting what he saw and what he heard. But there are four Gospels. 
And one of them, Matthew's Gospel, was based on Matthew the tax collector's recollection of Jesus. As a tax collector, he was an educated man and almost certainly wrote his own gospel with his own hand. And it's a much less personal, less stream of conscious account. It's very structured. It's very deliberate. And he, asks detail, he adds details that are not in Mark's gospel. And he add, Matthew adds detail to this interaction between Pilate and the crowd. And I'm going to read that to you now. So Pilate is talking to the crowd. He's asking them if he should release Jesus. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood on us and on our children. His blood on us and on our children. That short verse has become very controversial over the centuries. Why? Well, much of the controversy arises from the fact that Jewish persecution, the programs, anti-Semitism, even the Holocaust, has included the charge that the Jewish people were uniquely responsible for Jesus' death and that the guilt, the Jesus' blood, is on Jewish hands. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Who were the people there? Well, this was the temple in Jerusalem at Passover. This was a Jewish crowd. This would have been all the pilgrims, all the people visiting Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And this is the crowd that is saying, crucify him. His blood is on us and on our children. You might recall that in 2004, Mel Gibson made a movie about Jesus uh, and Pilate and the crucifixion, The Passion of the Christ, and was based on Matthew's Gospel. And this verse, this, in, the, in the movie, this verse occurs when Pilate is talking to the crowd. And it caused outrage. In fact, the film has been declared since 2006 as the most controversial film of all time, followed by Stanley Kubrick's uh, A Clockwork Orange, by the way. And it was based on that verse. His blood is on us and on our children. 2,000 years later, Jesus' death, his crucifixion, is still an outrage. The great scandal of human history, and nobody wants to take responsibility. Nobody wants the blood of God, the blood of Jesus, to be on their hands. So here's the question. Who killed Jesus? Well, there are really four candidates, three candidates. Pilate and the Romans. Legally and practically, they're the ones that killed Jesus. Jesus was put to death by Pilate. It was his decision. And Jesus was actually crucified by Roman soldiers. They were the ones 
that made the cross, that nailed him to it, and, and erected it outside of Jerusalem's walls. Politically, it was the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Jerusalem. They were the ones who came up with this charge that they brought to, to Pilate. Originally, the problem was blasphemy. They turned it into a political charge so that Jesus would be crucified. So Pilate, legally and practically, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, politically. Emotionally, though, the crowd. They're the ones, after all, crying out, crucify him, and demanding that Barabbas, rather than Jesus, be released. So who killed Jesus? It is human vanity to assume that human beings were able to decide to kill Jesus, Son of God. It's like children squabbling in the playground or squabbling at home. Who's to blame for breaking the glass? Everybody's pointing fingers. Nobody wants the blame. But remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The eternal trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. All power, all knowledge, everywhere in all times and places. Infinite in goodness, justice, love, truth, perfectly holy. Do we really think that such a God could be killed by human decision or a tyrant's will? Jesus was a man on a mission, not a victim. His name, Jesus, means Savior. You can also translate it, is salvation, is a cry for help, is my help. Jesus came into the world, a man on a mission, deliberately, willingly, his decision, not anybody else's decision, certainly not any personal power in this world, on a mission with a purpose. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus came to be our Savior. He knew exactly what he was getting into. He deliberately made that journey, and every step of the way, he knew the consequences. We've seen it as we've gone through Mark. Mark uh, 8. Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man, that was his favorite title for himself, because Son of Man in the Old Testament is the Messiah, to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Or Mark 10, on the journey. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will arise. 
We saw that very night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen that night. So if you are ever asked who killed Jesus, what is the proper answer? I did. I killed him. His blood is on ours and on our children. The only reason that we, I, have a hope or a future is because of Jesus' crucifixion. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate reached Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. When I uh, was at seminary, my first Easter at seminary, I was at the chapel. I had only been a Christian relatively few years. I didn't know much. And uh, this young, fiery preacher led the, the Easter service at the chapel on campus. And he got to this passage. He's talking about the crowd saying, crucify him. And he got down out of the pulpit, and he came into the middle of us all. We're all students and, and professors and teachers. And he led us in a chant, crucify him. I had never come across that idea before. There I was, sitting in seminary, chanting with the others, shouting even, crucify him. He made us say it so many times. And it was electric. It was shocking. It was overwhelming. And it was completely true and devastating. And it's when I realized what the cross really meant for me personally. Jesus went to the cross deliberately, actively, not because the Romans thought it was a good idea, or the Sanhedrin, or anybody else, but because he was going to save me by going to the cross and paying the price for me. There is a shocking truth at the heart of Christianity. It's still shocking. There is a need, a hope, a prayer. And the most accurate, shocking, terrible, scandalous, honest prayer that a Christian can make is his blood is on us and on our children. Why? Because that is baptism. You become a Christian by becoming baptized. That is the rite of passage, the entryway into the Christian church. What are we doing when we baptize? We are washing people with water as a visual parable, a witness to a theological truth, that we are made clean, we are washed clean by Jesus' blood. And you've all seen me stand up here with children, baptizing them. And it's cute, and it's cuddly, and they look beautiful, and we all smile, and we all laugh, and it's so wonderful, and it's so much family. But think what you're doing when you baptize your children, when you get baptized. His blood is on us and on our children. What the world sees as blasphemy, as controversial, is the essential Christian prayer. It is our only hope. It is at the very center of the Christian church. What are we doing when we go to the Lord's table? 
The bread is Jesus' body crucified on the cross. The cup is Jesus' blood shed so that we might have new spiritual life. Baptism. Washed clean by Jesus' blood, we can now stand before God without judgment. I'm going to make a suggestion to you. This morning, in a moment, we're going to go to this table. I want you to say that prayer. It is a scandalous, outrageous, controversial prayer. But it is a central Christian prayer. May his blood be on me. Not may. His blood is on me. I've been baptized. I don't have children, but some of you do. May his blood be on me and on our children. And that is our only hope. And if that's not true, Christianity is nonsense. As you come to the table, as you take the elements, I want you to think about that. I want you to say that prayer, claim that prayer. It is a shocking prayer, but it is the most accurate and truthful prayer that you'll say today, I guarantee it. Let's pray right now. Lord, you are no victim. You are our savior. You are a hero. You fought the fight that we could not fight. Fight against death, against our sin, against the wickedness of our broken world. Lord, help us to be humble. It's not about us. It's about you. It's about what you did. You willingly went to the cross to save each one of us. Help us claim that. May your blood be on all of us and on all of our children forevermore. Amen.